Happy New Year's, everybody. This is Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. As you can tell from the intro music, we're talking about masks today. Probably one of the greatest cartoons of the 80s. Theme song is definitely the greatest of the 80s. And we're talking to Doug Stone himself, who was the voice of Matt Tracker. He also voiced Hondo and Sato. Doug has had a fantastic and long career. We talk about it. We talk about how he got started in the business. Really nice guy. We talk a little bit of hockey. He's a big hockey fan. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Doug. Keeping out of trouble, keeping managing to keep busy despite being sort of semi-retired. Right. My my friends laugh at me when I describe myself that way because uh, I don't seem to spend any time sitting by the beach or anything like that. I'm always doing stuff. So yeah. Do do they still contact you, or do you kind of like search out the work? Uh, Generally, it's them contacting me. Ninety-five percent of the time, uh, the work is just coming in, which is wonderful. It just Having been doing it for so long, people, you know, know me right. and uh, st- studios know me. So uh, when a studio gets a job, even if the ing- or rather either even if the director may not be familiar with me, if it's a younger director who never has worked with me, the studio may say, hey, look, there's this 45 year old or 55 year old professor. Uh, we ought to get Doug Stone to, to do that voice. Right. And, you know, and they'll recommend me to the director. So uh, it's cool because I get to meet some of the younger uh, people, up and coming people that I wouldn't meet otherwise. Uh, yeah. But that, sorry, I was going to say that, you know that's great that you don't really have to, even though being semi-retired, you just let the work come to you and you kind of pick and choose what you want to do. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I don't get offered too much that's objectionable anymore. There was right. a time that I did get some stuff I was offered that I just didn't want to do. I didn't like the the type of work it was. But pretty much everything I'm offered now is is uh, nice work. You know, it's for games and not generally not violent stuff, right. which I'm not a big fan of. Yeah. <clears throat> but because I'm an older voice, uh, I'm generally not invited into those types of uh, war game things. I do a few uh, that have uh, some fighting in them, but they're, uh, the kind that I object to are the ones that it's like, um, I forget what it's called, or you know, they drive by shootings and all this oh, stuff. Yeah, where the, to the me, it's encouraging oh, violence. Yeah. It's not right, right. It's not like we're at war because we were invaded by monsters from outer space, so we have to fight them. Okay, I get the premise. You know, that's yeah, a, a sci-fi premise, and we're fighting bad people. We're fighting bad creatures. But when it's uh, it, it involves law breaking and uh, you know anything that's too too overtly sexual, where it, it's uh, I think it's I forget what that anime is called Hinai or something. Yeah. You know, where they'll have a octopus raping a girl or whatever. You know, there's things like that I just won't do. Right. No. Yeah, but I think smart. people know that, and I don't get offered that anymore. Oh, that kind good. of stuff. That's good. Was there ever a time, like in your career, like when you kind of second guessed your decision, like for a job? Uh, my decision to get into this business? No, I mean, like uh, you got a role and. You were kind of like on the fence whether you should take it because it might have been objectionable stuff, but you ended up taking it. Do you ever regret oh, those? And then regretted it afterward. Yeah. Um, I can't think of it. No instance comes to mind. It it may have happened uh, where I mean it probably has happened where I didn't realize that there was going to be as much screaming or fighting right. and as much throat breaking as I had signed on for. You know, they may not have been forthcoming, but I can't. Uh, I can only remember one instance. Yes. Uh, a film 
that, uh, I, you know, I do looping, uh, or I, I used to do a lot of looping, providing voices for TV shows and films. It's called looping work. Right. Uh, every drama and every film, none of the extras, of course, speak because they'd have to pay them an actor's fee. Uh, and all the voices that aren't principals are being supplied by a group of voice actors who can improvise and lip sync. And uh, anyway, I was asked to do a film one time and did it. And it turned out to be about this rapist killer who was just it was just butchery, the whole film. And they had not warned me ahead of time. I knew the person who'd hired me from before, so I couldn't just walk out. But it was really disgusting. And uh, in the end, uh, the guy gets away with it. Hmm. He just walks off into the sunset. And I said to the producer director who was there, I said, am I missing something? Does, is there like after the credits, do we see a, an anvil fall on his head right. or something? Where there's some retribution for all the things? He went, no, no, I'm thinking I might want to do a sequel. You know, he wasn't a very nice man. Oh, might want to do a sequel. And I thought, oh, my God, that's, this was such a disgusting thing. So I did have to go to the person who'd hired me and said, you know, I'm so grateful for all the work that you've given me in the past and everything, but I can't do, if you get another film like this, you can't call me in because I can't do it. I, I, I literally feel nauseous. Right. And, and that night I went home and I didn't feel, I felt dirty. Yeah. Like I'd contributed to something <laughs> that was being put out in the world that, that shouldn't be out in the world. Right. So needless to say, you didn't watch the finished product. <laughs> Oh, no, no. Yeah. I rarely do see the finished products okay. anyway, but certainly no, I never sought that one out. Or It probably was straight to video in those days. It was in the 90s. Right. Okay. Uh, but no, I have no no desire to see it. I don't even remember the title. I, I doubt I even put it on my resume. <laughs> right. So I It was imagine, just disgusting. Right. So I imagine you, you did quite a few work of like kind of editing movies so they're safe for like, you know, basic cable, you know, cutting out all the profanity and stuff, right? Uh, yeah, sometimes we're, the looping is is that after a film is done, we may go in uh, like I voice matched Joe Pesci and I voice matched <laughs> Sean Penn and right. other people, uh, and we'll we'll take out the swear words. But it's also like uh, any TV show you watch, um, say it's a medical show, and as you're watching the show, you're hearing a doctor who walks behind one of the principals and he's talking about an X-ray or he's talking about a medication or whatever, and you hear just a few words of it, and then he goes by. And then you see, uh, you hear uh, somebody playing a radio at the nurse's desk or whatever else. All that's done by us. That's done by four or five actors. We're everybody in on the show who isn't a principal. So we look at all those extras who were standing there holding x-rays, moving their mouths without speaking, and we'll uh, make up something that matches their mouths the same as we do with dubbing of, of anime. When uh, I used to write anime scripts, uh, uh, adaptations where you'd look at the lip sync, and I used to do it for live action films that we'd. Uh, when I had my own company, we used to do uh, the early Jackie Chan pictures okay. uh, for Golden Harvest Pictures, was one of my big clients back then. Um, so that skill came in handy when when doing looping, uh, where you, so you're looking at all what all the extras are doing and supplying their voices. And uh, let's say it's a film that takes place in Europe, and the principals are traveling from country to country. Well, every train station, uh, every scene outdoors, etc., is going to have different languages being spoken behind them. Again, they're not hiring people in those countries to speak because they'd have to pay them a full actor's fee and residuals. Those are just extras. Instead, they'll hire actors with language skills or accent skills, and we become in the in the sound studio all those people. Yeah. So how much freedom do you have 
kind of like voicing this, you know, the actors kind of deciding on how they're going to sound? Uh, it, it really depends on the show, but there's a lot of trust involved, uh, uh, particularly when it's foreign language. When I've had, when I used to have my own group, uh, my group did all the Hercules and Xena TV shows in okay. the 90s. Right. Uh, I had a group called Synchronicity Looping, and we also did some other TV shows and films. And there was times uh, when I'd have a film that was, uh, I think I had a Perot film or something, where it did go in all these countries. I had to trust the actors um, who spoke other languages, since I don't, that they would be appropriate, you know, that they would say appropriate things. You just give them a little speech beforehand and let them know what you're expecting of them and what, what is appropriate for this particular type of film, whether, you know, what language can be used, whether swear words can or can't be used and et cetera, remind them that no product names can be used, um, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, sometimes if it's a historical, uh, uh show, then uh, you're going to do, um, uh, research right. and you'll come in there knowing who the governor of Ohio was in 1912 and what the favorite music was in Ohio in 1912, what they ate, et cetera, et cetera. All these references that are local to what that film or TV show is so that uh, everything you say is appropriate and you make sure that you don't use any vernacular that's too modern. And occasionally you'll throw in these references so that the words and things that do creep through to the audience, even if it's just to their subconscious and they're not even conscious that they're hearing it, but everything they do here is absolutely true to the, to the show. So it doesn't pull them out of the reality. Instead, it helps create the reality for them to be absorbed by as they're as they're viewing the show. Um, so it's that type of work. And sometimes, like I, I worked on a, a film with um, a Gary Oldman. Okay. Uh, he he had directed a film called Nil by Mouth, and uh, it was it took place in Britain, and a lot of it took place in bars, um, and it was working class. And he only wanted Brits on it. He did not want anybody doing an accent. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, there was a lot of technical work that had to be done. A lot of people's voices, mouths were moving that had to be voice replaced. And they found some working class Brits, but they didn't have a lot of experience. So they brought in about five of those guys, and then they brought in two of us who could do the accents. And we were sort of the ringers. We weren't allowed to tell Mr. Oldman that we weren't British. <laughs> so all day long, I'm talking to Gary Oldman like that. Yeah, nice to meet you, Gary. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, Randy and I'll take care of that. They've got the rest of it, you know, and I'll just work in class British all day long and just hoping he wouldn't figure it out. Right. So we, we acted like we were very shy and didn't interact with them a lot because, of course, we don't know the modern vernacular of Britain. Maybe we can imitate the accents, but we yeah. don't know what everybody says at bars, what the local sayings are. So the other guys handled that, and then Randy and I would step up and do the more difficult work where where voices had to be replaced or lip sync had to be done, etc. But again, uh, all uh, obviously all our accents had to be true to the film, which was shot in Britain, but was being the audio was being done here in L.A. So we he had to have British uh, accents here. Right? Did uh, Gary ever you know figure it out? No, he uh, we we went the whole day without him knowing that we weren't British, nice. which was pretty cool. <laughs> that is cool. <laughs> yes, yeah, pretty cool. It was a very tense for Randy and I because we couldn't fall out of it for one second, even when we spoke to each other. Right. Uh, we were there for about eight hours, and we just had to keep it up the whole day that we talked like that. <laughs> and you, no, one word otherwise. Right. And you mentioned Joe Pesci and uh, Sean Penn before. You know, they have very distinct speaking voices. How long did it take you yeah. kind of to like mimic them? Did you practice a lot? 
Well, uh, certain ones come to you easily, and then you get known for them. Like every, well, I used to do Sean Connery, right. and then um, I just messed around. You know, I'm rusty. I haven't done them in a long time. Joe Pesci's up his very nasal placement, <laughs> and he, you know, he's uh, he punches his head in the front of his mouth a lot, and of course he swears all the time. So <laughs> I, I don't want, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear in your oh, thing yeah, there, so I won't go for it. But that's no. what's your fucking Pesci? The way you get. <laughs> Sometimes you have a phrase you use that get like uh, if you want to get into a, a, a voice. Sometimes you have a phrase that you'll use in your uh, and repeat, and that's what helps. That's your key to get into the voice. Okay. So for me, I, I have to go. Joe fucking Pesci. Joe <laughs> fucking Pesci. What the fuck? Am I a fucking here for your fucking amusement? And that's what gets me into it. <laughs> Danny DeVito. <laughs> I have to laugh. If I laugh, then I start to get into Danny. So, Sean, I just have to think sibilant S's. Go sibilants. Again, that's rusty, but I haven't done him in a long time. So, you know, you just find keys that get yeah. you to the different voices. With Penn, he wasn't somebody I did all the time, but uh, he had done a film, which has still not been released. Uh, he'd done a film with um, uh, Mel Gibson. I think it was called The Professor and the Madman, based mm -hmm. on a, a best-selling book. And it's caught up in litigation. And I guess Penn was involved in litigation with the uh, studio and the director. And they had uh, his character had a series of letters he had written. Uh, the character was in the Civil War. And they had been writing to this professor who was creating a dictionary. Um, and uh, Penn wouldn't come in to do the voice work. And they needed it done because uh, at this point, I guess they thought they were going to release the right. film. So, and that was an instance where somebody just, uh, the person they hired to cast it thought of me uh, as well as some other people and just said, hey, I'm going to audition these, you know, seven or eight guys that I think might be able to do it. I was one of the people that uh, she auditioned. Uh, you know, I was able to do it at home. They just sent me uh, Sean Penn uh, uh, samples uh, from the film because he was putting on a slight I think he was putting on a slight southern accent. I can't remember. And he was also pitching his voice a little differently. He was pitching it rather low. And anyway, that was just something I auditioned for and got, and then went in and worked with the director and ended up reading the letters as Penn's character. So you, you, all kinds of odd things happen. Right. You get very strange. It's, it's an odd business, and, yeah. and the jobs, uh, you know, there's the very straight-ahead jobs where you're just doing a commercial or you're, You've been hired to dub some anime or, or an original animation series or whatever. And then there's the, the these very odd jobs that, that you'd have difficulty explaining to people right. um, what exactly you were doing. Right. Do a lot of the actors, like you know, Joe, you know, Joe Pesci mentioned, uh, do they like not come back and kind of finish their, their – Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what happens. Uh, Pesci uh, apparently – and this happens with quite a few of them um, – uh, they don't like uh, – there's certain actors that I guess when they're on camera on site doing their work, they're fine. But they don't – they can't just come into studio and replicate it in, in the, um, the very neutral sound studio where there's right. no director, there's nobody else there but you and the microphone, your headset and some people in a booth. And you are expected to be very – you know, maybe very emotional or very angry or, you know, whatever. You have to replicate what you did on camera. And some of them just aren't comfortable with it. They don't enjoy the process or they have difficulty getting there emotionally and, and doing it. Uh, Pesci's not a method actor, but uh, historically what I found was uh, a lot of actors who came out of the, the method school okay. seem to have difficulty with that because they're very much in the moment actors. And so they have difficulty with that, uh, that 
sound studio feel. In Pesci's case, I think he's just bored by it. He'd rather be on the golf course. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and, and and maybe doesn't maybe he doesn't even see the point of of why they want to get rid of the swear words. I don't know. But anyway, uh, he's somebody that uh, very often uh, my understanding is that that it's always a, a voice match people who are doing his TV cleanup work. Right. And sometimes they're out of uh, town. There can be times when somebody's done a film and uh, six months later they're they're working on the audio and they go shoot we have to change this line for one reason or another uh, a helicopter flew by and, and it's too noisy and whatever but shoot our actor is in france on another film and uh you know we can't get fly over there and da, da, da. do we have anybody who can voice match him for that one line who sounds just like him and the audience won't know and and somebody might come in be, to be a voice match uh, I've done that kind of stuff too, where it was just an additional line or just a slight change to a line that needed to be done. Uh, and so you've, you've gone in and, and voice matched an actor for, for those purposes. I mean, I've had it where it was one word that, that they needed from a performance and the actor was in Australia. So they had wow. me do it here in LA. Uh, that was for return to the blue lagoon many oh, yeah. years ago. I remember that, uh, yeah. but they just needed one word added. Right. Uh, off camera so it can be all kinds of all kinds of stuff as far as the looping goes um uh, but again every tv i've done about a thousand uh, looping jobs uh, i stopped counting after a while but i did about a thousand during my busiest times uh, and, and again it's every dramatic television show and essentially every film Unless it's a film that takes place in a house with only five principal actors, you know, those kind of movies. Right. But if it involves anything with crowds or stores or uh, any exterior shots or TV shows that are shot in, you know, where they're, they're, they're supposed to be in a business or a restaurant or whatever else, then there's voice actors involved. Yeah. So I imagine you probably see the same actors from show to show come in oh yeah the loop groups there, there are actually loop groups here uh well-established loop groups some people make their living strictly by doing that kind of work that work pays the same as an on-camera essentially the same as an on-camera actor with residuals wow That's so cool. it's work that everybody wants voice actors very much want down here and it, it generally if you're good with improvisation good with lip sync good with changing your voice and accents those are all skills that can get you in and then once you're in yeah you do tend to work uh, if you're good you tend to work a lot so yeah you do see the same uh, a lot of the same people and even the differing groups will sometimes hire some of the they'll have their favorites but uh, you will see some actors being uh, in my heyday i was being hired by about i don't know six to eight different groups uh so you will you will tend to see people and end up you know building relationships and friendships right yeah i, I had a Teresa ganzel on a couple of years ago and she you know does a lot of looping right now and she's ah yeah and she's pretty much said the same thing you know it's the same group of characters that come in every time and uh it's a very small fraternity yeah it is a, it is overall a small there's a couple of groups that are very uh, I won't name names, but there's a couple of groups that are very much, uh, you work for me and you're not supposed to work for anybody else. Right. Da, 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 da. They get very protective. But most of the groups, to their credit, and I think it's the, the way to go, it's, it's like you don't own the actors. And uh, I don't see that 
we all had, well, I'm not doing it anymore, but when I had a group, I didn't feel like I had to be competitive with everybody. Right. So we would, uh, we would recommend people to each other too. Uh, you know, if I needed somebody who spoke uh, Yugoslavian, I don't know, uh, you know, somebody from Belgium, I might call another loop group and say, have you ever used an actor from Belgium? I really need one for, and you know, and they'd recommend one to me and I would be courteous enough to do the same for them if they needed recommendation. And, you know, it's so much nicer if you can do it that way, you know, where you're, everybody just works together and you don't get possessive. How did, um, how did you first get involved in the business? In the business itself? Yes. uh, Overall? uh, Well, I'd been, since I was a little kid, I was fascinated with with uh, theater and and acting. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Just going to take a little drink here. Sure. Um, so I had done amateur theater as a child. I'd done a little bit of radio work as a child. Um, but growing up, I'm from Toronto, Canada. Growing up in my era there wasn't really much Canadian content as far as uh, television went. There was only theater and you couldn't, I mean, very few actors made their living and could make a living just doing theater. Um, Perhaps the ones who were doing Stratford, uh, who were doing Shakespearean plays over and over again, could eke out a small living, but it just wasn't something you dreamt of uh, as a possibility. So I just did amateur theater. Uh, periodically as I grew up into my teens, I was doing amateur theater and directed a bit and acted, but just again, never thought it could happen. My dad had been a radio announcer in Canada. And so I started to think that might be a possibility of a creative outlet and I love music, but then uh, that kind of changed to where the era where the announcers could play their, there was an era where FM announcers could play anything they liked and they could really be eclectic and, play jazz and then play a Frank Zappa song and then play some world music or whatever. Um, and that's what I had envisioned, but that changed and got commercialized. So I thought there's just no way to make a living in Toronto, you know, forget it. And so I did every other kind of work there was, um, uh, growing up. Uh, I worked, I've been, I've been working full time since I was 16. Um, and uh, I was part of the hippie era. I had shoulder-length hair. I was a candle maker, a furniture maker, hitchhiked for a year and a half, drove cab, uh, got into the computer industry, became the manager of computer security for a company in Canada. So I've, I've done a lot of different things. Um, but one of my last jobs uh, was a company that was uh, associated, General Foods of Canada, associated with General Mills, doing Jello commercials right remember when bill i don't know if you're old enough to remember oh, okay. bill cosby course, used to do yeah. jello commercials well they had to do scratch tracks for for bill cosby commercials in other words before he comes in to do the commercials they'll have somebody else do them so they can time them out see how it sounds etc cetera, etc cetera, get it all perfected so when the talent comes in the high-paid talent they don't have to change anything they know they've they're going to get you know get it just the way they want it they're not going to mess around while they're They've got the, these people in studio. So they uh, auditioned and said, does anybody want to do this? And I thought, well, that might be fun. So I auditioned and they said, oh, you're good. Come on in. I started to do their scratch tracks for these commercials. And I just thought it was a break from work. But they had a very nice studio at that company. And the guy eventually said to me, you know, I'd like to get you to do some other stuff for the company, but I'm going to make sure that you get paid because you're doing a lot of stuff for us. 
So suddenly I was getting paid to do voice work. And it occurred to me, I thought, well, if I could actually do commercials and do voice work and do theater, maybe I could actually make a living in the business. Wouldn't that be amazing? So I made a demo tape and I shopped it around in Toronto and actually picked up some clients for voice work, doing commercials, uh, primarily doing characters, you know, uh, doing a vampire, doing Santa Claus, you know, for all the different holidays and whatever. And I picked up a mall or two where I would do all the commercials for these malls. So suddenly I had this income and I was doing amateur theater at night and I thought I'm going to go for it. And I quit my day job and uh, devoted all my energy to, uh, to theater, a little bit of on-camera work that was starting to happen in Toronto in the 80s. And I started uh, doing uh, some on-camera, what, what was called in those days, straight-to-video uh, uh, work, and also voice work, and uh, was able to make a living. I formed my own improvisational comedy group, and we toured and uh, in Canada, and that helped supplement the income, and then also the voiceover work, and um, and also doing straight theater, you know, comedies and dramas on stage. Uh, and between the, all of it, <laughs> I was able to get my equity card for theater, and then my ACTRA card, which is the Canadian Union for on-camera work. Uh, so I was able to achieve all those those goals that I was after, and then coincidentally. Uh, I had done an on-camera lead in a small on-camera production. The uh, cinematographer liked my work and recommended me to a very large agency in Toronto. Within about six months, they got auditions that I think only two agencies in Toronto got for a cartoon series called Mask. I've heard of it. They wanted wanted Canadian actors for this series. And coincidentally, the agency I had just signed with was one of the ones that they... uh, supplement they gave the material to uh did the audition got three roles moved down to la it grew into eight roles in 65 episodes and then um i got enough encouragement from people here in la who said uh, you could actually work you're good enough to work here which i had never even aspired to do um that shocked me and obviously pleased me so i used the money from mask to, to move to L.A. and, uh, you know, struggle for a couple of years to get my foothold here instead of Toronto and have been here ever since. And there you go. Right. And, you know, you brought up Mask. And do you find it out and strange that, I don't want to say strange, but that we're still talking about the show almost 35 years later? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, on, none of us, I, I, th- I can speak for all of us because I've talked to everybody. Um, None of us expected that. None of us thought the show would have that kind of dura- that, that kind of legs where it would still be. There's fan clubs. I mean, I, I get um, requests for autographs. I've gone to conventions where I've signed autographs for Mask. Um, uh, Retrocon in Philadelphia, uh, I think it was 2016, people lined up to get autographs uh, based on Mask primarily. Some for Psycho Mantis, but primarily 90% were for Mask. So it yeah, total shock. Um, totally surprising. Yeah, and then when the show was out, you know, '85, there was still a ton of other like great cartoons. So it was like battling for, you know, kids' time. And you know, back then there there wasn't, you know, TiVo. There wasn't DVR. When it was on, mm-hmm. you, had, you had to watch it because you would never really see it again. So it was yeah, exactly. It was very you know, yeah. either that or tape it. 
yeah, and then not everyone had VCRs still back then, so it was yeah. like, yeah, and the show was great. I mean, the the theme song is probably one of the best ones of the eighties. Who who, uh, who sang that song? Do you know the theme song? I don't know who sang it. I know it was created at Saban. Okay, you know Saban, who later went on to Power do Power Rangers, Rangers or whatever. Right. When they started Saban, they were a music company, and that's what they were doing was, you know, doing things like writing theme songs for other companies' cartoons, etc. That's just when they were getting a foothold. That was my connection, because I ended up working at Saban, too. Okay. Uh, and that's how I met them, uh, was they were just down the street from Deke, the show that did Mask. They were literally just down the street right. from them, their offices. And uh, at one point, they were trying to create their own material and asked Deke, do you have any actors you can send over who can, because uh, we don't know any actors. We're, we're trying to dub something. Nobody knew what dubbing was, or I didn't know. Right. But they sent the mask crew over. So we went over there and, uh, and, and you know, provided voices for, exper- for their experiments mm-hmm. prior to um, Power Rangers. Wow. And then uh, I, I got in with them, uh, eventually ended up actually uh, directing and producing some of their work. But um, anyway, it was a... a, a Haim and Shuki Levy, Haim Saban and Shuki Levy's company that uh, created the mask music, but I don't know who did the singing. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, because that's, that's one of probably top three, you know, intros of, you know, all the cartoons I think ever. It's, it's such a fascinating song and it, it really, you know, brings you into the cartoon. Yeah, they did it. They did a great job. They, they I'm, I'm not sure what other shows they wrote for, but, uh, uh, but the mask theme was definitely catchy. Right. When when you um, got the role, I guess, you know, the main one, you know, Matt Tracker, but you did other ones. Did you, was that your initial audition was for Matt Tracker? Uh, I think it's hard to remember, but I think initially they had me audition for everybody. Okay. Uh, all the male roles, but I think they were auditioning uh, other people in Toronto and also people in L.A. What had happened, as my understanding was, that they wanted Canadian actors because it was a, a French U.S. Canadian production, okay. but they were going to do it under the auspices of ACTRA, the Canadian Union. So they auditioned actors here in L.A. who were from Canada, but they hadn't found their Matt Tracker, and there was a few other roles they weren't sure about. So uh, they were primarily interested in finding a Matt Tracker. So that was the big one they focused on, because you got to have your lead. you got to have your hero, obviously. It's important. Um, but I think I auditioned for everything, and then they just settled on, okay, the, the uh, Hondo, Bruce, and uh, Matt were the first three I got, but the biggest one they were concerned about was Matt, and they had me audition. I think because it was remote auditions. Uh, you know, I was in a studio in Toronto okay. with a bunch of people on the phone from LA, uh, and I think I auditioned about three times, and they really put me through. You know, which I understood. Right. They, uh, okay, here he is. You know, give him. He's scared. He's angry. He's this. He's that. You know, they really wanted to test me. Uh, to be absolutely sure I could take direction, uh, that they liked what they heard, et cetera, et cetera, before they made the decision and said, okay, great. Uh, we want you for these three roles. Come down to LA. All right. How, um, how different was voicing that from your regular voice? Different. Yeah. And how, how much did you have to change? Oh, b- between characters. You yeah. Mean? Oh, great deal. A great deal. It, it was a learning process. Right. Fortunately, the, the voiceover work I'd been doing in Toronto, although I hadn't done anything quite like that, but I had been doing characters a lot. Uh, as I say, with the initial commercials, because I, I, I did have some flexibility in my voice and could do accents and whatnot, a lot of the commercials I'd been doing were character-based. So I had some experience in, in changing up 
not just doing a straight commercial read in my own voice. Um, what I found was very helpful was to change my stance. I would physically change how I stood uh, as I did the different characters to help mm -hmm. me um, vocalize them. Uh, and it, it's, it's just interesting. There's little tricks you can do in the studio that do help you. Um, because I'm not a big man, but Matt Tracker obviously is, as right. was Hondo. Uh, I, stood, I stand very straight when I'm doing Matt. My chest is out. I, I really engage my diaphragm and my lower register of my voice. When I do Bruce Sato, I actually close up my body. Hmm. I, make, I, I bring my arms into my chest. I hunch over slightly. I make myself smaller and more humble physically. And that helps me to get both the character and the voice uh, to differentiate. So I love it. It's, it's, a, it's a big challenge, of course, to, to differentiate them all. Uh, from each other, particularly if you you look at a page in the script and you go, oh, wow, I've got three of my characters on this page talking to each right. other. So I've got to go from character to character to character. And they would say, well, do you want to do one character first and then do the second one, then do the third and we'll patch it together? And I'd say, if you don't mind, I'd like to go one to the next to the next because to me, that's the fun. Yeah. It, to see if I can pull it off. It would be really cool. You know, just give me a beat or two between to change my body, and you know, change my vocal positioning. And then I want to do the next one that I want to answer them. Then, I, you know. That, that was the fun of it. Uh, it. It's like, I don't know, I guess for some people skiing or flying yeah, a plane. Right. Uh, for, but for me, that that gave me a thrill. You know, that was exciting for me, that kind of work. I, I love when I'm doing multi-characters. Right. I, I love when they're talking to each other. Right. Uh, particularly if they get in an argument with each other or a disagree. <laughs> it, it just, it's just fun. It's just right. silliness and getting to use your imagination and your skill set. and it, it, It's enjoyable. Did the entire cast... Were they all in one room while voice recording the the episode? Yes, yeah. uh, we recorded as a group. The uh, it did change eventually. Uh, the young fellow who played um, my son, right. uh, because because of his schedule, you know, he was an actual little boy at that time. He was a kid, a nice kid too, and easy to work with. Uh, but because of his schedule, eventually he started to be recorded separately because okay. uh, of school right, schedules right. and everything. Uh, but initially he was with us. But after that, it was just the adults. Uh, uh, I can't remember at what point he stopped recording with us. How, how long uh, did but, it take for an episode? To one? Um, I think uh, we averaged to, uh, the initial episodes. Whenever you start a new cartoon, it, uh, uh, it's always about four hours. Right. Uh, when you're first beginning and then once you get the flow of it and everybody gets used to the characters, you're looking at you know, two, two, two to three hours per episode Okay. on average. Right. And I know they, they had like the original, to record one. right. They had the original 65 and I think they made like a second season with like maybe 10, 11 episodes. Yes, there was yeah. 10 in the very much not my favorite season. But yes, right. uh, they did the sort of the racing car yes. type thing, right. which I, I didn't like very much. Yeah. But yeah. Why did they kind of like change it a little bit? Was there ever a plan to go beyond the 65 or just with the original like premise of the show? This isn't something that they they tell us, the actors. You know, we only get the rumors and the stories. Right. Why they had the, somebody had the brainstorm idea of that race racing thing? I don't know. My I can only make a guess that it had to do with maybe they thought we'll get more toy sales right, with all right. the cars. Yeah, I don't know. But to me, it was so one too one dimensional. Um, I thought the success of the original show, the original sixty five, in part had to do with the stories and with the characters. I felt like the kids liked the characters, and that 
the, the stories had to reflect those, the characters as well, that you could uh, laugh along with Dusty being, you know, energetic and silly, and then uh, Bruce with his little his little pearls of wisdom, and Matt with his basic decency. You know, everybody had their little right. aspects of their personalities. Whereas in the, those last ten episodes, I didn't feel that we were showing enough of that. That was just my opinion. But you know, as an actor, you have no say in any of that. Uh, that's all somebody else's decision. Right. And they, I know they made a, a comic book uh, a few years mm-hmm. ago, and I think they're working on like a live action movie. But they, they never really made like a a remake of the cartoon, like most other shows. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, there was litig. There's, uh, I believe, litigation in part. Okay. Uh, we and I think I'm free to speak about this. We got ripped off a little bit as far as uh, uh, royalties went because this is under actor, not uh, uh, SAG. Right. Uh, we would be getting royalties as opposed to residuals. Uh, we only received a few. The show was sold, but this isn't at the fault of the original people. I'm not blaming them. They sold the show. Uh, they sold the, the 75, I believe it was, episodes. They went to a company in Europe who then sold them again. As these, uh, It got sold about three times, and as it was being passed around, they didn't pass around the actors' contracts. Oh. And so when, when our union contacted the then-owners sometime in the 90s, saying, hey, you guys are showing these things in Europe and on TV. You're not paying the actors. They went, we don't have any contracts for the actors. Nobody gave us anything. When we bought this, we weren't told that we would have to pay the actors anything, and we're we, we're not going to. That wasn't part of our deal. So somehow we got dropped somewhere along the line. Our contracts got dropped, and we never got the royalty money owed to us uh, for all the showings that went on in later years. Uh, it was only when it was um, put out in a box set, and I, I wish I could remember the company name, but it was put out in a box set here in uh, the States – and I, I wish I could remember the name just to thank them on your show. I, was, I have thanked them like by Shout, email. Right? Shout Factory? Sorry? Shout? Was that the company who did it? That might have been Shout. Okay. It might have been Shout. That sounds familiar. And in any case, they did the right thing by us, where they actually did contact the union, our union. And we didn't get a huge amount, but that doesn't matter. It was the, you know, morally, right. they, they played it correctly. And they and they made sure that we got our, our share that we were supposed to get for the box set. And I congratulate them for that, for, for doing the right thing by us. But unfortunately in, uh, in Europe that did not occur. So the show just kind of went wildcat, uh, as far as we actors were concerned. And we didn't see the, uh, the money that we should have seen for the, for all the play that it's gotten as uh, over 35 years. Uh, we, that has not enriched us, unfortunately, as it should have. To some extent, it should have. I mean, the royalties at this point would be very minuscule, right? But that's that's the way it's supposed to be when you know every hmm. we're supposed to be getting a share. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, that just did not occur after a couple of years' time. We stopped getting uh, checks. Right. Uh, yeah. That's that's a shame because uh, it's so fantastic. I I have that box set in my house, ah. so uh, I contribute a couple of pennies to you. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Sure. Now, w- would you be excited if? the live action movie came came out oh sure i'd be happy about it i mean i'd love to participate right. but i'd understand if i didn't but yeah i'd be happy for it for the sake of the fans and it would just be fun for me too i think to be able to point at it and say you know there they are <laughs> you know obviously i i'd love it i know they've changed matt tracker a couple of times trying different kind of matt trackers obviously i'm sentimentally attached to the original guy 
but I get it too that they, you know, they they're experimenting with ways of modernizing it for a new audience. Uh, what I obviously to me, what I'd love, like they did with with the great Stan Lee, uh, not comparing us to Stan Lee, but I just mean that uh, as far as participation goes, right. <clears throat> if they were to create a movie, be it live action or animated or whatever, it would be just really nice if they included the original cast, even if we just did a voice. Or if they, they panned by a table of people having coffee and it was us. Right. And and just fans knew. And they go, oh, my God, that's the cast. Look at them all. You know, they're all yeah. older now, you know, 35 years. Later. Just a fun thing like that, that I think would be really cool. Um, you know, just to sort of touch, retouch it in that regard. But I certainly understand if they want to, you know, they'd want to cast it with younger people for a younger audience and all that. I get it. Right. But uh, I, I think the cast all, you know, and I'm still friends with a lot of the cast and in my communications with them, I think everybody kind of feels that way that you know, it'd be fun just to have a little participation in in it if it's redone. Yeah, I think that'd be fantastic. Uh, yeah, my, my concern yeah. with like, you know, making a live action movie would be kind of similar to what they did with like G.I. Joe movies and Transformer ones, which quite frankly, weren't very good. So I would be kind of nervous mm. how they would kind of make a, a mask movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's all script. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately remakes, as we know, so many remakes don't succeed or, or at least artistically don't succeed, maybe financially, but artistically they're disappointing to the fans. And, um, because I think too often they stray from the original intention of the right. show. Agreed. And although they have to, I get, I get that they need to modernize. I think real fans of these shows, they want the heart of the show to be the same. They want the essence of it to have a similarity, a familiar. It's like when you go to see a rock band uh, that you liked when you were 15 or 16, you're happy to hear their new hits and new songs, but you want to hear some of the hits. Right. You want to hear the song that first attracted you to the band, their big hit. Uh, I think that's just human nature. I, I think it's the same with these remakes that we want to have. That's why, you know, putting Stan Lee in these things, I think was a great idea that people who go back to the original uh, shows and were original fans, it gives them something to point to and, and look at and say, look, they honored the beginnings, you know, it just makes you feel good. So th that's my feeling on why some of these remakes don't work is I think they stray too far and, and don't, they forget to they forget too much about the original fans and what it was the original fans liked about the show. Right. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. In the case of GI Joe movies, it's prompt. They just basically call it GI Joe and then just made it an action war movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they seem to do that. They say, "Okay, we'll grab the familiar character and then we'll yeah. just do we'll just do a standard action film with right. it." And people will like it because it's the character they know. And I, I don't think that's the case. You know, I think they they want to hear some of the uh, some of the phrases that character used to use. Exactly. They want to see some of the situations, some of the personality quirks, some of the things that originally drew them to uh, to the characters. Yeah. All right, but uh, more importantly, now uh, talk a little hockey. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, that I can talk. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, your your Kings are struggling a little bit, but uh, yeah, hanging in there. <laughs> Well, they're actually doing better than they were called to do this. A lot of people have predicted them to, to be last place, which they're, I guess they're about 25th or 24th. Yeah. Not that that's a great <coughs> cause for pride, but uh, it means they're playing with a little pride, which is good. 
Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the problem. Is that mine? Oh, th- that was mine. <laughs> that was mine. <laughs> that was actually my wife going through, but I'll let that go. <laughs> the, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. When you're, when you're like a team struggling, it's, you don't want to be one of the oldest teams in the league either. And that's kind of what they are as well. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. they're trying to bring in some younger players, but they, yeah, they made the mistake everybody makes of signing people to yeah. 80 year contracts and, uh, yeah, but thank goodness at least now uh, uh, Brown and and uh, uh, some of their older players are actually p- among their best right now. Right. Uh, so at least they're you know other than their goalie Jonathan Quick, who's really struggling. But at least they're they're trying to earn their pay, Kapitar and everybody. But yeah, they 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 definitely need to, uh, as they seem to be trying to do, bring their young players along. But they're. It's a three, four-year project, I'm sure, before they're going to be competitive again. It just seems to be the way the league works now. With the, If you succeed too much, then everybody's priced out of your bracket. You have to let too many of your good players go or they age out. And three or four years later, you're bottom of the league hoping for good draft picks. Right. I mean, I, I look at the uh, the Maple Leafs right now. They're paying all these mm. these guys you know, tens of millions of dollars. And yeah. Their, their window is pretty short to win because if they don't – they're going to have to let their goalies go, some of their better defensemen. Yep. They're going to be stuck with. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, and I'm not, with all the talent they have on board, they should be, they're still not playing defensively the way they should be, uh, which I get that they've got so many great offensive players, but I, I don't ascribe to the theory that you win the Stanley Cup by winning games six to five. You've got to be able to win games one nothing, two to one. You've got to be able to play tight hockey. Yeah. And I don't see the Leafs being able to do that the way like St. Louis wasn't a top heavy talented team, but they knew how to play playoff hockey, tight, tough. Every, every time the guy moves one foot, he's got another guy in his face. Yeah. That's, that's playoff hockey. Yeah. And it's funny you figure with, you know, Mike Babcock being their head coach who's won it before could uh, instill some of that defensive hockey, but it really hasn't worked out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know that I'm sold on. I, to me, they've made Babcock into a mini god. I don't know. Yeah, he's made a lot of people seem to question his decisions uh, as a coach. I don't know. You know, yeah. sometimes you're given you can look brilliant because you've got brilliant players. You know, right. I don't know. I'm sure he's good, but it wasn't that he didn't have good teams with him either. Oh, of course not. Yeah, those Detroit teams were fantastic. <laughs> Exactly. But to me, I look at a coach and say, okay, if this coach came aboard halfway through the season and with the same players and suddenly they surged, then you can say, okay, the coach did something. But if if you're given all these superstars, well, you know, as long as you don't step over your own, trip over your own feet. Yeah. And And it's funny because that happens in hockey a lot. You know, Craig Berube came in, the the team was, I think, dead last one point in in January and he he was hired. And then they went on a run. It happened in Pittsburgh too, so it, it happens a lot in hockey where they they hire a coach mid season mm-hmm. and then they make a cup run and win the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it does seem to happen a lot in hockey. I don't know what it is that makes them tune up the old coach or whatever that somehow having a fresh coach in the room seems to really shake things up more than in other sports. It seems right, absolutely. But uh, Doug, this was great. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, no problem, man. No problem. And a special thanks to Doug for joining me today. If you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at the first Noel19. 
Also, check out Rolling My Youth on Facebook. You can hit me up there. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. If you don't have iTunes, it's not a problem. Go to SoundCloud. Go to Podbean. Go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. T-shirts, hoodies, phone cases, stickers. A new episode comes out every Wednesday. And we'll see you next week.